State of the Union speeches rarely contain surprises, but people sift through them to look for clues to future policy. President Biden didn't say a lot about the federal workforce, but there were some items to glean. My next guest knows a thing or two about how these things work. She just became the vice president for government affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, fresh from dealing with federal workforce issues at the Office of Management and Budget. Jenny Mattingly joins me now. Ms. Mattingly, good to have you on. Great. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to talk about all these issues with you. And are you still in decompression here, joining the semi-private nonprofit sector, having just come out of the old, I still call it the old executive office building? Yep. Yep. Actually, it's been a nice transition. You know, one of the nice things is that the work we're doing at the partnership isn't that different in terms of issues and substance than, you know, things you do inside just a different perspective about it and different way of working. And obviously, this time I'm well focused on some of the Congress and policies in a way that not always focused on in my role on the inside. Well, the difference is Max can buy pizza for everybody and expense it, which you can't do in the White House. That's right. I say I come to meetings now still carrying my water bottle because I'm used (laughs) to bringing all my snacks and water with me. (laughs) All right. So a couple of nights ago, the president gave his State of the Union speech and there was the usual Republican Democratic stuff in there and all of the shouting. But there were some things that stood out to you that presage what the federal bureaucracy, if you will, that has to carry out a lot of the stuff can expect. What did you see in it or hear in it? Well, I like what you said, you know, when you first did the intro about kind of parsing through the speech, because again, things aren't always, I guess every so often there's something about federal workforce or federal management largely, but a lot of times we're reading the tea leaves of what we're hearing in these speeches. And a couple things stood out at me. One was really talking about President Biden talked about the programs that they had passed, bipartisan bills that were passed over the last two years. And obviously, for us, those hold a lot of information around implementation. This now moves to the executive branch in terms of having to deal with the CHIPS bill, bill, IRA, all of these different massive pieces of legislation that have many agencies involved. And sometimes those are really implementation focused. And obviously, the partnership has a lot of work in terms of research and programming that helps agencies enable that work. But also, sometimes there are other policy barriers that haven't been addressed in these. And so, Will those conversations continue as we see how those play out? Another theme I heard was about bipartisan collaboration. And clearly that's important when we start talking about some of the legislation and policies that we see. I mean, there's a lot of talk around IT modernization in government broadly around customer experience. And those are bipartisan issues. So the more we hear kind of this nod to working in a bipartisan way. I think that's something that we're eager to keep moving forward with. With respect to those bills that passed, they showered literally trillions of dollars into the economy and into the federal government. I mean, way beyond what's appropriated yearly for the operation of government for acquisition and procurement and paying people and grants. And so I get the sense that agencies are still finding their way to how to handle all of this money. Look at all the fraud that happened under some of those COVID relief programs, billions of dollars worth. And so you get the sense that it's a great thing, but there's people down in the trenches still saying, how the heck am I going to handle all of this? And I think not only handle it, because we do want to make sure, and you know, coming from a government perspective, I know this idea of making sure the programs work for the American public and making sure that we're good stewards of taxpayer dollars, that's on people's minds. Sometimes it's about the tools that they have to deal with this. It's about getting the staff in because obviously with more programs and more funding, you might need more people to do the work. And so obviously this idea and the conversations I've heard a lot of, of how do we get the right talent in the door? 
and what's going to enable agencies to do that. And that takes time too. And so there's this tension naturally between trying to get the money out to the people that need it and the programs that need it, but making sure you have the right people in place and enough people to enable that work. Yes, because a lot of agencies have really specifically staffed up because of that spending. Small business administration, not so much the IRS. They Their money is yet in the future under some of the, I guess that was the infrastructure bill that got them money. But this whole idea of enlarging government, that's pretty much on people's minds right now. Enlarging government is one way to say it. I like to think about what's the mission you need to do and what's the right amount of skill sets and talent that you need there. I know for a lot of this, when I was in government, one of the things we were working on was pooled hiring actions. So the agencies working on similar issues could band together, hire talent at the same time. And so that we weren't doing all these one-off actions actually allowed people to look for the skills they needed that are kind of consistent across these positions in government, but also leverage economies of scale. So we're not taking so long to bring people on board. And so some of it was just getting up to speed and doing that. And really sitting down and saying, we need grants managers, we need, you know, IT folks, we need customer experience folks, data analysts. And so those were some of those identifying those skills and just making sure that we could actually band together and hire the right people for that. We're speaking with Jenny Manningly, Vice President for Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service. And trust in institutions is something the president mentioned. And that gets down to, you know, you hear phrases, those unelected bureaucrats doing this or that, or the people in Washington not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's part of that trust component. Yeah, and I think it's really important. And I was actually glad to hear that. Uh, focus on trust in institutions. And, you know, I think we've seen various polls out there that say maybe there's a lack of trust. There's also a difference between trust in Congress versus trust in federal agencies. And so that's a little more nuanced than anything that was said last night. But I like to think that this idea of focusing on trust is something that should drive us in terms of how do we deliver? And that when we were just talking about implementation and having the right people with the right skills, Having agencies that can deliver customer, you know, customer service, they can deliver on these programs, they can do the money out the door in ways that are responsible and respectful of taxpayer dollars. Those are those are things that help enable trust and help keep the trust going. And so I know in the partnership, we've done some work around trust in government and had a report and some data that came out about a year ago in that space and really finding out. Part of what I've found, too, in the trust piece, and this is something I really appreciate about the partnership, is storytelling. There's actually a lot of good work going on in government and a lot of great people. Those stories don't get out. We always hear, you know, there's this sometimes this trend towards the big stories that maybe aren't as positive, And then we forget a lot of the positive stories. And so this idea of really sharing, and that's something we hope to do with Congress this year, is bring up stories of where things are working, where things might need help, but also just keeping that storytelling aspect to bring it back to here's the people and here's the work they're actually doing. And as a more practical matter on the short term, the debt limit that the president brought up the other night, and of course, federal employees are well aware that extraordinary measures are underway right now by the Treasury, including using TSPG fund dollars, and there's going to be some sort of reckoning if this isn't resolved in time by June. So what's your feeling there, and what should people take away? Yeah, I think in the federal space, and we've seen this before, this isn't the first time over the you know years that the debt ceiling has been a conversation and that extraordinary measures have been taken. But I think what my takeaway usually is when these conversations happen is it makes it hard for federal employees to sit there and do 
the work they need to do. It takes some of the focus away from mission. And there's this, you know, should we get to a point where there is a debt ceiling, you know, people start worrying about government shutdowns. They start, you know, we've had that before in the past. And I don't know that we're going to get there this time. My hope is that that bipartisan spirit continues in terms of making government operations front and center. But I do think we just want to keep focusing on we need government working because that's what the American public trusts. They deserve. They, you know, they rely on these services. And so, uh, yeah, our focus has always been let's make sure government can keep operating. And so I think the more we can have those conversations again about why we need government doors open and government workers able to deliver is important piece to that debt ceiling conversation. Yeah, he didn't mention the return to the office and so forth. That's a big debate, you know, with the mayor of Washington. But to the public, sometimes it appears as if, well, if those buildings are empty downtown, they must not be doing anything. And it gets very fine-grained because it's the answer that someone got, if they got an answer, calling IRS or the resolution of something if they walked into a Social Security office. And there's still a lot of people that want to walk in and sit down and have that help in person at Social Security, just to name one. For many people, it's what happened the other day in their interaction with a federal agency. Fair? Right. And that's where a lot of times you actually do see that nuance, both in this idea of, do I have a person to talk to? But when you look at surveys around understanding government and trust in government, a lot of times people will say, have one view of government writ large, but they like the interactions they have with that person. And so I think that's that, again, that's where I go back to pulling up those individual stories is important because it's easy to get lost in the big picture discussion of this. But I do think too, also being really transparent and communicating who's teleworking, who's not. We've got a lot of federal employees who have been on the job five days a week through most of the pandemic. You know, you've got national security folks, you've got healthcare workers, you've got a whole lot of folks who are out there working and interfacing with the public every day. And so I think just making sure that we're able to tell those stories and to talk about what makes sense, because these are all mission business decisions and private sectors dealing with this too. You know, we've kind of, kind of come to a whole different way of doing business in the pandemic, just different conversation people are having. But bottom line, the Republic looks like it will survive at this point. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what we're all we're all going down that path. <laughs> all right. Jenny Manningly is vice president, newly named for government affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, recently leaving OMB. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL 
uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, ba- they basically were in d- direct care. And, and I will say, and on, a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes, uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.